thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So then welcome back to this uh, Bible study. We are going to be studying Exodus and Numbers together. And the way we're going to do that is uh, we're going tonight to study and look at chapters 1, 2, and 3. And um, most importantly, obviously since this is going to be a uh, much more condensed and uh, faster study, uh, I'd like you to read the chapters beforehand. So you're familiar with the text and know what we are talking about. That will be very helpful for you. And I'm not going to go verse by verse because obviously there is no time to do so. I will be highlighting a number of themes that are applicable for those chapters. So for tonight, there are five main themes that I think are very important. The first one summarizes Exodus. What is the book of Exodus all about? The book of Exodus can be summarized in the following fashion. It is about knowing, serving, and loving God. That, in a nutshell, is what Exodus is all about. To know, to, lo- to serve, and to love God. The second th- main theme that we're going to study is essentially the continuity from Genesis. The Pentateuch, meaning the, five, the first five books of Scripture... Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy are one book. And they need to be read as one book. Even though we slice them as five, they're really meant to be read as one book. And we'll see how this continuity um, surfaces in the book of Exodus tonight. The third and the fourth point are related. The third point is really about the complete reliance on God. How we must be completely reliant on God. And the second point, that is the, that is the fourth point that we're going to look at tonight, is the fact that we must, be, we must not be reliant on self or on a state. But that's exactly what, what happens in... Um, in, in the face-off between uh, Moses and Pharaoh. And the last main theme that is very important in these three chapters, surprisingly though, I wasn't expecting it, is the role of women. It comes up very uh, strong and clear in, uh, in, in, uh, in these chapters. 
So again, let me, let me repeat those five main themes we're going to go through tonight. The first one is, the purpose of the book of Exodus, if anything you should remember, is that Exodus is about to know, to serve, and to love God. And we're going to see that over and over throughout the whole uh, cycle of this book. The second book point is that it is in continuity with Genesis, and we're going to see it in the life of Moses, and the similarities that exist between Moses, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. Very striking similarities present all in the life of Moses. The third and fourth point are connected. The first one speaks to us about the complete reliance on God that we should have. And it's contrasted with those who do not rely on God, but instead rely on themselves and on the state. And then the last point we're going to look at is the this emphasis, the role that uh, women play in this book. So with that, let us begin then. To know, to serve, and to love God. As I said in the beginning, the book of Exodus is a continuity of the book of Genesis, which effectively is tracing the destiny of the children of Jacob. So there are two halves of the book. In the first half, we see the theme of the personal God dominating. So Moses comes to know God and he discovers quite a bit about God's nature. So then the first, again, the first half of the book is dominated by this theme of coming to a personal knowledge of God. So when God encounters God, when when Moses encounters God at the burning bush and during this conversation he has with him, he discovers much about God's nature. What does he discover? Well, first of all, he, he comes to know the divine name, Yahweh, which in English is usually, in your Bible, you will see it tra- uh, translated as the Lord, all caps. When they want to indicate that another title of God is used, El Shaddai, or God, they will use Lord, where L is in uh, upper cap, and O-R-D are actually in lower cap. So if you pay attention to the way Scripture uh, represents these words, you will know which of the two titles of God is being used. One, God, El Shaddai, the strong one, are about some of God's attributes. But the name that God gives Moses, I am who I am, or I am the one who is, speaks to the very inner nature of God. And we will be taking on much of the meaning of that name next week. Contrast that with Pharaoh, who expresses his ignorance about the Lord. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And we'll see that in chapter 5 verse 2. What is then the purpose of these signs and wonders that God produces in Egypt? No, we call them plagues, the ten plagues. But scripture does not use the word plague until the tenth. That and only that event is called a plague. Every other one of those events is called by God, a sign and a wonder. Well, with wonders like these, we need catastrophes, right? Why are they called wonders? Because the purpose of them is to get the Egyptians out of their superstitious, and, and belief in demonic powers 
and bring them into the light of faith. God is first and foremost concerned with our spiritual destiny, then our physical, in that order. Don't take it from me, take it from Jesus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then everything else shall be added unto thee. That is the proper order, because this is how God sees it. We, on the other hand, are mostly concerned with our physical well-being, and then we want to go to heaven. And much of our work of conversion is to switch from that view, wanting food and wanting, wanting clothing and wanting shelter. When we've got those, we move on to the next step. Wanting ice cream, wanting chocolate, and wanting good time. When we have those, we move on to the next step. Wanting the watch and the iPad and the iPod. And once we have those, move on to the next one. And we're deeper and deeper and deeper into the ways of the world. God sees it very differently. And so a wonder of God is these signs. So for instance, to make you understand that, cancer can be a sign and a wonder of God. If it yields someone to the knowledge of the Lord. So the signs and wonders are done in Egypt for the purpose of bringing the Egyptians out of the slavery they're in into the light of the knowledge of God. And indeed, after the Israelites are saved, there'll be a song of praise. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Who is among who is who among the gods is like you, O Lord? That is coming from the Israelites who were seeped in Egyptian mythology for 400 years and come to realize that none of the gods is like him. The second half of Exodus develops further the theme of knowing God, but this time focusing on the establishment of a special relationship between the Lord and the Israelites. The first half is personal. It is one individual, actually two. Moses and Pharaoh facing God. And through it all, we see how they interact with Him. The second phase of Exodus is communal. It is the whole nation of Israel as a nation coming together to know the Lord. And what is the mode of knowledge? How is that knowledge imparted? How does God make Himself known? As a matter of fact, what do you think is the most important the most important element in the book of Exodus. Ten Commandments. Any other suggestions? It's actually not. It isn't the Ten Commandments. It's not even the covenant. The most important element in the book of Exodus is the tabernacle. More chapters are spent on the construction of the tabernacle down to the most minutest details given by God than on any other element in the book of Exodus. So therefore, the communal knowledge of God is in its very essence liturgical. The preferred way, the best way, the easiest way to come to know God is through the liturgy. That is, as we celebrate the liturgy and we praise the Lord, He makes Himself known to us. As we celebrate the liturgy and we praise the Lord, He makes Himself known to us. Hence, 
every interlocution, every miracle, every apparition of a saint, of Our Lady, every extraordinary manifestation of God's presence in the world, are nothing but an extension of the liturgy. The Mass. Without the liturgy, none of that would happen. Therefore, the focus is significantly placed on the tabernacle. And we'll get to that. However, as, we, as was alluded to, in the second half, we see the making of the covenant. We see the commemoration of the tabernacle. We see also the conditions under which the Israelites must live in order to enjoy an ongoing relationship with God. So the second piece of Exodus is to tell the Israelites... I am your God. I am going to be in your midst. In order for you to come to know me, this is how you shall behave. How you must behave. And if you do not behave this way, I will chastise you to teach you my ways. Therefore, the chastisements and the curses we're going to see in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy are a continuation of the signs and wonders that God worked in Egypt because God shows no imparti- God is impartial. He shows no partiality. Right? Furthermore, there is another element in which God manifests Himself. And we've already seen that in the book of Genesis with the story of Joseph. And that is providence. The work of providence continues. Because you will see that there are times where God speaks... But there are times where he doesn't. But it does not mean that he's not guiding everything. Providence is nothing more than the manifestation in history of the working of the Holy Spirit. It's effectively the historical presence of the Holy Spirit. Or the Holy Spirit in history. That's what providence is. So that's the first point I wanted to make. That the book of Exodus is about knowing, serving and loving God both on a personal level and on a communal level. That's what we're going to go through. Let's move on then to the second point. Moses, in his own person, recapitulates, repeats, if you will, the covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Jacob, and Joseph. And stylistically, the way Scripture shows that is through echoes. In fact, we are familiar with this, what I'm talking to you about. You look at a at a girl, and if you've known her mother for a long time, you see her do one thing, and you smile. Because it echoes something you've seen her mother do, perhaps when her mother was much younger. And you will say, like mother, like daughter. There's these echoes from one generation to the other. What happened to one repeats in the other. Well, Scripture uses that to indicate those connections. I'll show you how this works here. Moses and Noah, let's start with that. In the book of Exodus, if you read the first chapter, you will see that there is a genealogy which is given. The genealogy totals 70. There are 70 names in that genealogy. Now, every scholar agrees that if you follow the genealogy all the way down to Moses... As, it, as, it's, as it's followed, that is, from Joseph to Moses, there are not enough names listed. Because if you assume that every, um, um, 
if you assume that there are about 40 years between them, then you would have to conclude that Manasseh, Joseph's son, was alive when Moses was born. That is, 400 years later, since the death of Joseph. And we know this is not possible. Therefore, it is a selective genealogy. Not all names are listed for a purpose. Only 70 are listed. Why do you think the number 70 was chosen? For two reasons. The reason, the first reason is that 70 is 7 times 10, obviously. 7 is the number of the covenant. 10 is the number for completion. When you say all 10 were present, you mean everybody was there. So covenantally speaking, everybody was there. Hence, the whole, the whole of Israel is included in those 70 names. The other reason why 70 was given was because the total number, the total number of names from Adam to Noah is 70. That's the first echo. So for someone who knows his genealogy in Scripture, he'll immediately see, whoa, 70 here, 70 there. So you are prepped to start seeing the relationship between the Moses and Noah. His mother hid him from, for three months. Then when she could not, no longer hide him, she constructed, in the English Scripture, you will read, it says, a reed basket. But effectively, the Hebrew does not use this term. The Hebrew speaks of an ark. And so just as Noah was placed in the ark, went on the waters, and was saved out of the waters, Moses was placed in the ark, went in the waters, and was saved out of the waters. By the way, one thing to keep in mind, you might hear this a number of times from some of your friends who may be Protestant. When, they, when the Lord in, in the Gospels speak about the end of a time or the end times, He says, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be, I don't remember exactly what they're doing, knitting or sewing or something, one will be taken, one will be left. Because of the Protestant influence, Catholics have come to believe that he, that he means that the one who is taken is the most fortunate one because he's taken up to heaven. But what they don't re realize in this mistaken understanding of Scripture is that Jesus is making reference to Noah. Actually, he makes that reference only a few paragraphs before. At the time of Noah, a whole bunch of people were taken, and a few were left. And who were fortunate? The one who were left, not the one who were taken. Okay? So, the indication here, therefore, if you understand this, is that just as Moses was the one who was left, meaning he's the one who survived, and because of the number 70, him being the one who takes Israel out of Egypt, you see that he, and by extension his people, will be left. Therefore, who will be taken? The Egyptians. That's how the echo works. Now, like Noah, Moses and those who were with him survived the waters. They cross through the sea 
whereas Pharaoh and his men drown in the sea. And the last point is that the covenant with Noah is recapitulated and made more specific with Moses. So we see these Noahic echoes across the board with the life of Moses. The last point is that Noah was the father of all nations. Moses was to form Israel as a nation. Now let's move on to Moses and Jacob. Both are younger brothers who replace in revelational significance an older brother. Jacob over Esau, Moses over Aaron. Both manage to offend a brother. Jacob offends Esau and Moses offends Aaron. Both are sought out by God when they were not looking for him. Moses was minding his business with his sheep and Jacob was on his way up. They were not looking for God. God came to them. Both were afraid in the presence of the Lord. Jacob was filled with fear and Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. In subsequent history, the site at which the theophanies occur, meaning where God came to meet them, the theophanies, the presence of God, became uh, sites of pilgrimage, very important sites. Bethel for Jacob and Sinai Horeb for Moses. When, and then what Laban is to Jacob, you remember Laban, right? Pharaoh is to Moses. Laban tried to prevent Jacob from leaving, first by giving him Leah in marriage, then when he ran away, he pursued him. And God had to intervene to prevent Laban from doing him harm and bringing him back. Likewise with Pharaoh. So you see all the parallelism between the lives of Moses and the life of Jacob. Moses and Joseph, very illuminating. One, Joseph, represents the old covenant and Moses foreshadows the new. Both are involved with Midianites. Remember, the Midianites are the ones who pulled Joseph out of the well and sold him as a slave. Joseph is taken to Egypt by them, while Moses goes out and marries one of them. So Zipporah's wife is is the daughter of the Midianite priest. She's a Midianite. Joseph goes from being slave to second in command. Moses goes from being a prince to a fugitive. Notice the opposites with them. Everything's going to be in in up. Going in opposite directions. Joseph's action led Israel to Egypt. Moses' action will lead Israel out of Egypt. Joseph's actions save Egypt from a catastrophe. Moses' action uh, effectively point to the destruction of Egypt. So everything is in reverse with them. But that's how we have these echoes between between Moses and and Joseph. Beyond that, there are covenantal echoes that we see between uh, Exodus and Genesis. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, God not only heard their cry, but He also remembered His covenant. Now, what does it mean for God to remember His covenant? It doesn't mean God sort of forgot about the covenant because He was busy with some other universe out there. And then suddenly there was this alarm that rang on his desk. And he went, oh yeah, I forgot about this. I should go see what's going on over there. What does it mean to remember? Jesus told his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. What does that mean? To do it to remember him? No. 
the Greek word used is actually anamnesis. An amnesis. What is amnesis? It's the Greek word that gives us the English word amnesia. An amnesia. To make completely present. As when someone who had completely forgotten who he is suddenly remembers. So all his reality is brought back to him in the present moment. That what remembers means. Therefore, God remembering the covenant means that God is about to bring the covenant to the present moment. He is about to execute the covenant. That's what remembers. It's a weak word in English, unfortunately. It's much stronger in the Hebrew and in the, in the, in the Greek. It's mostly, it's a way of saying that you're going now to bring the full force of the law. Now you're not fulfilling the law, you're executing it. That's what he's going to do. It's the same when God remembered Noah in the ark and rescued him in Genesis 8.1. So the, base, the, the point here is that God is dealing with Israel on account of the covenant that he made with Abraham and the promises that he made with Abraham. Therefore, fundamentally, Abraham is an intercessor for Israel. They're not being saved on account of their own holiness, and we will see they have really little of it later on. They're being saved on account of the covenant that God established with Abraham. Remember when we said we inherit original sin because of Adam and Eve? They are saved because of Abraham. It goes both ways. Yeah? We may be saved because the intercession of Our Lady. We may be saved because of the intercession of someone in our lineage who is praying for us. And that is why the communion of saints is such an important concept. Because it demonstrates how God executes the covenant. Without the communion of the saints, effectively the covenant is meaningless. Now, throughout Exodus, the divine presence is frequently symbolized by fire and smoke. Not just in Exodus, in the entire scripture. Fire and smoke oftentimes symbolizes the presence of God. When God speaks to Moses, when God speaks to Moses, He warns him not to come near because He is holy. We're going to go through that next week. But the point is that it is already telling us something about the structure of Israel's worship of God, especially with the tabernacle, which is that God is absolutely holy. Absolutely holy. We do not understand God's holiness. In fact, we have no idea what that means. Uh, St. John of Ars when, uh, said one day that he asked God to give him the grace to see himself as God sees him. And the holy uh, priest of ours said, God fulfilled my wish and showed me myself as I was for a second. And had he not taken that away, I would have died because it was so horrible. And thankfully, God erased the memory of it from my mind and I will never ask him to do this again. We do not understand God's holiness. In fact in a very unconscious way, or maybe not so much an unconscious way, we tend to measure God's holiness by ours. So if I'm about six feet, well, God is probably nine feet. We, we don't understand it. But anyhow, God is supremely holy. However, 
God is also intensely personal. He's not some sort of a far removed God out there, nothing to do with us. He's intensely personal. We, compared to God, are completely impersonal. Compared to Him, we're like computers. We're so cold. We tend to think that God is cold and remote and far and this and that. The truth of the matter is that we are. We're the one who are cold. We're the one who are remote. We're the one who are far. We're the one who are changing. If someone upsets us, we just pull back. God is not like that. He's always intensely personal. Interested in every smallest detail of our lives. We're the ones who don't want to share. We don't want to tell God everything. We don't want to tell Him about our daily struggles, about our daily problems. Because we think God is not interested. We project on God our idea of greatness. Secretly, if we were great, we would be tyrants. Because that's exactly how we would think of it. We would be removed from all these little details of things. But that's not how God is. He's intensely personal. The second half of Exodus is developing further the theme of knowing God by focusing on the establishment of a special relationship between the Lord and the Israelites. So, the first half is on Moses and Pharaoh, on personal, on, 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 on two persons who symbolize the relationship that we can have with God, either by accepting the covenant and living it, or by refusing the covenant. The second half now focuses on the entire nation, on the formation of the nation of Israel. And in, during that um, narrative, there are two main focal points. The first one is the covenant that God will renew with Moses. And the second one is the construction of the tabernacle. The construction of the tabernacle is the longest piece of the book of Exodus. More chapters are devoted to the construction of the tabernacle than to anything else in the whole book of Exodus. We tend to be driven by action, and therefore we focus on the initial phase, which is the, you know, what we call the plagues, and the Egyptians escaping, and the golden calf, and all of this. But in fact, the book of Exodus is mostly, the biggest chunk of it, is on the tabernacle. So, there we move from a personal relationship to God to a communal and mostly liturgical relationship with God. The liturgy takes center stage. So the liturgy of the Old Covenant is preparing for the liturgy of the New Covenant. And here's another way to know if you know God or if you love God. Your desire and love and devotion for the Mass. For the Mass. The more you develop a true love of the church as your mother, the more you develop a true sense of wonder at the participation liturgy, the more you are drawn inwardly into the life of the Trinity. Because those are the signs by which God reveals Himself to us through the liturgy. And that's why he spent seven chapters explaining, seven or eight chapters explaining to Moses how the tabernacle should be built and another six chapters on how it was actually built. 
God is interested in architecture. He gives very clear direction on how the tabernacle should be built. Very precise, down to the minutest detail. The last point I will make, as far as the book of Exodus is, generally speaking, is that as we've seen in the end of the book of Genesis, providence, that is the Holy Spirit, guides most of the book. Because there are direct intervention by God, but in between those, there is what seems like silence. God does not speak directly. But it does not mean He's not directing the destiny of Israel and of Egypt. Providence is at work. And providence is, again, one of those distinctly Catholic concepts. Providence is the working of the Holy Spirit through the agency of men. Things happen, but doesn't mean they happen by chance. If you're a believer, you know there is no such, such thing as chance. There is providence. The, work, the silent working of the Holy Spirit in our lives through others. All right. Let's move on to the second point. Moses, as I said, it's a con- Gen- Exodus is a continuation of Genesis, specifically in the life of Moses. I'm going to show you that uh, because it's sort of interesting to see how the ancient writers would try to convey these truths. And the way they would do it is topologically, meaning that they will show that the life of this person mirrors the life of this other person. Hence, there is a deep connection between them. You know what I mean when you say, oh, well, the apple hasn't fallen too far from the tree. Or, like father, like son. Or, like daughter, like mother, right? Those types of expression are trying to say that I see in the behavior of this person the traits or characteristics of that person. Well, they do the same thing by bringing out, by highlighting certain events that parallel what happened to others. Let me show you some examples. First, Moses and Noah. Moses and Noah. In the first chapter, there is a genealogy that is given in the book of uh, Exodus. And the total number of persons listed is 70. Now, this is not an exhaustive genealogy. It is not complete. If you were to think that it is complete, then it would force you to believe that actually Joseph knew or saw or met Moses. Yet we're told there's 400 years that went between the two of them. So this is not the case. The point is, 70 are listed. Um, Why is that important? Why is number 70 important? Because it is the number of descendants from Adam to Noah. 70. And obviously, completeness. 7 times 10. The covenant times 10. 10 meaning completeness. 7 times 10 is the completeness of the covenant. But it is fundamentally a hint that says, aha, there is a Noah... There's a Noahic element here going on. And indeed it is confirmed. Why? Because, um, as you know, when his mother could not hide him any longer, she put him into, we say in English, in a translation, a reed basket. But really, if you go back to the original, she put him in an ark. So here we have the, the notion of Moses being put into the water in an ark, just as Noah went in the water in an ark. And he was saved from the water back on land. And so was Moses, saved from the water back on land. It is that therefore this hint would say, okay, now I know what I'm going to expect. Um, Jesus used that when he spoke of um, the end times, and he would say something like this. Two women would be in the field, one will be taken, one will be, one will be left behind. 
right? Or two men will be working, one will be taken, one will be left behind. And because of the Protestant influence and their misunderstanding of Scripture, we got convinced that the one who was taken was the one who had the better lot, and the one who was left behind was the one who had the poor lot. But the truth of the matter is exactly the opposite, because what Jesus had in mind was precisely Noah. When the flood came, a whole bunch of people were taken, and about eight or nine were left behind. Now you know who had the better deal, the ones who were left behind. Do you understand? That's the element here. Moses was in the water, and he was left behind. By implication, those who will be with Moses will be left behind. And those who are not with Moses or against him, what will happen to them? They will drown in the water, and that's precisely what happens to Pharaoh and his men. The Noahic element runs through the entire story where there's a recapitulation of uh, the events that took part in the life of Noah. The covenant with Noah is recapitulated and made more specific. So again, God will go back to the covenant with Noah and make it more specific here. So these are some of the points that make us that see similarity between uh, Moses and Noah. Now we go to Moses and Jacob. Both are younger brothers who replace in revelational significance an older brother, Jacob over Esau and Moses over Aaron. Both managed to offend a brother. Jacob uh, offended Esau. Moses offended Aaron because he's the one chosen and not Aaron. Both are forced, forced into exile. Jacob had to run from his house. So did Moses. He had to run away. Both meet with God and both are afraid. In the case of Jacob, he said in Genesis 28, 17... Jacob was afraid, and now here we have Moses hiding his face, for he was afraid to look at God, in Exodus 3.6. In both cases, the initiative to meet these men was God and God alone. None of them was looking for him. None of them was actively seeking the Lord. God came to them. In subsequent history, the sites at which the theophanies, meaning the uh, uh, revelation or um, appearance of God, happened, became sacrosanct. Bethel and Sinai Horeb became uh, sites of uh, sacred sites. And finally, what Laban was to Jacob, Pharaoh was to Moses. Because Laban opposed Jacob leaving, first by tricking him into marrying his oldest daughter, Leah, and then by postponing his uh, departure, and Jacob had to flee, and was pursued, and was saved by the Lord, and so is the same with Moses. So you can see these parallels, which are fairly striking. Moses and Joseph. Moses and Joseph. Both are involved with Midianites. The Midianites are the ones who grab Joseph from the well and sell him as a slave. So we're going this way. In the case of Moses, he goes to the Midianite and marries one of them. Now you can see how they're actually at opposing poles. Joseph goes from slave to second in command in the nation of Egypt. Moses goes from being a prince to a fugitive. The opposite. Joseph's actions lead Israel to Egypt. Moses' action leads Israel out of Egypt. 
Joseph's action saves Israel, uh, saves Egypt from destruction. Moses' action leads Israel to destruction. So you see these uh, parallel between them. There is more. The woman at the well. We see Moses meeting the woman at the well. And this business of meeting a woman at the well is very significant. So Moses meeting his wife Zipporah at the well in 2.17 is closely paralleled by Jacob meeting Rachel at the well in Genesis 29.2.14. Abraham's servant meeting Rebekah in Genesis 24.10.28. Also Judah meeting Tamar at the springs, which is well again. And there's another important one, which we have in the New Testament, that echoes all of that. Jesus meaning the woman at the well. And most of us misunderstand what he tells her because we don't have this context in mind. Because when he speaks to her, she comes at noon. Why she comes at noon? Because she cannot come early in the morning when there's shade. Why? Because she's rejected by the society. Because she's living an immoral life. So she has to come after all the women have come. And Jesus says to her during this conversation, he says, you are, it is true, the, the man who is with you now is not your husband. And we immediately understand that to mean that she's living with a man who is not her husband. But that's not what Jesus is implying. That's not, he's using irony. What he really applies is the man, the man who is with you now, as we speak. Who is that man? Yeah, the man who is with you now is not your husband. Makes no sense until we go back to all these scenes where the patriarchs met their wives at the well. You understand? And what Jesus is talking about, obviously, in the style of St. John, is the mystical union of the soul with God. And then he goes to explain to her how... That union happens through living waters. You have to have the desire, then you have to ask for it, you have to receive it, and then the union happens. I mean, this is all mystical theology. We're not going to go into this right now. What I'm trying to point out to you is that these similarities, these images, need to be built into our consciousness so when we read Scripture, the Holy Spirit can actually touch our heart and hearts and speak to us in our own lives about what He wants to say to us. But if we are ignorant of the meaning of Scripture, it's very difficult for the Holy Spirit to actually illuminate our conscience. Right? Fine. There are also some covenantal echoes I want to cover. The Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. God not only heard their cry, but remembered His covenant. That expression, God remembered His covenant, does not mean God had forgotten about it, because He was busy with other things. And suddenly He went, whoops, I forgot about all these people. They've been crying so loudly that actually their cries reached me and now I... No, it's, a, it's an anthropomorphism. It's a, an expression that applies to human, but we bestow it or apply it to God so we can say something about it. Remember the covenant means that God is about to execute the covenant. He's going to act according to the covenant. 400 years have passed before God remembers the covenant. In Genesis, he told Abraham, your descendants will go down to Egypt, become slaves, will live there for 400 years, and then they'll come back. And that's what happened. Why do you think God went silent for 400 years? We saw that in Genesis already. When Abraham 
and Sarah decided that God didn't have a clear plan for them. They decided to take matters in their own hand. So, Sarah gave Abraham her maid, and Ishmael was born. After that, God stayed silent for 13 years. He didn't speak to Abraham. He made him wait 13 years before he came to talk to him. And later he told him about Isaac. <clears throat> Abraham, Abraham, he says, here I am. He said, take your son, your only beloved son. Ouch. That must have hurt. He had two sons. Abraham lived with Ishmael for 13 years. And he loved him. Your only beloved son. Hmm? That's why. Why are they silent? Why? Because what happened? When they were up in Canaan, famine hit them. Joseph was in Egypt, and he brought them down to Egypt. What did they do? On their own. They stayed. God told them, that's the land I'm going to give you. What did they do? They said, Lord, well, that's really great, but you know what? That land is better. We're just going to go live there. God said, all right. You want to be like the Egyptians? To Egypt you'll go, and I'll show you. I will show you what it is like. 400 years later, they're in slavery. But remember, the slavery, the spiritual slavery is far more uh, pernicious and stronger than the material one. The material one is only a physical manifestation of the spiritual one. And you will see how in the book of Exodus they're really slaves to the gods of Egypt. They're fallen under in idolatry because they really attach, they, they become attached to these gods, of, to the Egyptian gods. And we'll see that. One more point, a couple more points I'll make very quickly. Throughout Exodus, the divine presence is frequently symbolized by fire and smoke. It's not just in the book of Exodus. We'll find it with the prophets. We'll find it with Isaiah, for instance. We'll find it with Elijah. We'll find in the book of Revelation, fire and smoke. And there are numerous um, um, references here. But it is, again, the symbolism, the symbolism of it is the covenant. It's the covenant. God remembering. That's why when you get into the church, you see them lighting up the candles. God remembers His covenant. Now, let's move to the third point. God, complete reliance on God. In Exodus 1-8... to we see one of the major events of the book, which is that generations have passed. The Israelis, have, the Israelites had greatly increased in number, and a new king had arisen in Egypt over Egypt. And the Bible does not identify this new king. There is no name to him given. It is likely that what is meant it's a new dynasty, a new Egyptian dynasty. And many scholars identify this new dynasty with that of the Hyksos, an Asiatic people who reigned over Egypt during the second. Intermediate period, meaning 1786 to 1558 before Christ. 1786, 1558. It's a speculation. We're not completely sure, but that's the best we can. That's the best guess we can have. Now there is obviously irony behind this, because the more he tries to stop them, the more they grow in number. And that irony is destined to show us that God is intensely involved in their lives. Okay. You will notice that tyrants, in all their forms, use birth control. They are about birth control. The concern of the king is that the, Egypt, the Israelites have grown in number, and that is a threat. Today, the birth control mentality is pervasive. Men is afraid of man. 
We think we're six billion. How are we going to be able to manage this? Man has become the enemy. Man has become the problem. And every tyrant is about birth control, whether within his own family or within a nation or a state. Look at China. In God's eyes, a child is always a blessing. There is not one account. There are many curses in Scripture, and we'll go through some of those. But there is never one case where God says, I'm going to curse you by sending you triplets. I'll teach you. You will not find that anywhere in Scripture where children are used as a curse. They're always a blessing. What comes around goes around. Okay? What comes around goes around. We live in a tyrannical age because it's the age of contraception, the destroyer of families. That's the first point we need to make about um, this notion of completely relying on God. The Israelites are oppressed and they have no way to defend themselves, yet they're growing in number. In fact, we've seen that even in recent times when Stalin killed 20 million Ukrainian Catholics, the Ukrainians were able to grow. When Indonesia went after East Timor, the faith and the life of the East Timorians grew. Every time persecution comes, the faith grows. Right? And that's what he experiences. So he now changes his approach and he decides to kill all the baby boys. Why? Leave the girls. Why? Because once the boys are dead, the girls need to, be, to marry. Who are they going to marry? Egyptians. Therefore, the entire wealth of the Israelites will go into the Egyptians. Notice, again, Selective killing, selective abortion. It is the, the same mentality at work. No different, whether in the past or today. And one thing I'll point out to you, which is we'll, 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 we'll meet that later, is that the whole narrative of Exodus is really sandwiched between two events. One is the narrative in 1 and 2, where the Egyptian kings attempt to suppress Israel, and in Numbers... 23, 24. So essentially, Exodus leads us to the point where the, um, the um, Israelites are at Sinai, and Numbers picks it from there. Picks it up from there. And in the end of Numbers, they are again threatened by the Moabite king, who is attempting to suppress them. And in both narratives, we see how futile that is. Because the people relied on God. I cannot stress this point to you more, I mean, I, I can't stress it, I can't be more explicit, especially you guys who are not yet married, who might be married. You live, you've been indoctrinated to think of children as a threat that must be tightly controlled. You may be already conditioned to believe, nobody maybe told you this, but you're already conditioned to believe that you should have two, maybe three, and then you've done your duty. That is a contraceptive mentality. That is the mentality that is forcing you to break the covenant. Because it is saying the following. I am on my own. God and the covenant have nothing to do with my life. I can do as I choose. My destiny is mine. I'll do it my way. And that kind of nonsense. If you're going to rely on your own strength to live this life, you're going to be... Excellently miserable. We excel at being miserable. And you see them all around you being miserable. Nothing can be further. 
It's a lie. I told you, I have seven kids, and the reason why I have seven kids is because I could not get 14. I did not stop at seven. God stopped. I'm still in negotiation with him, and so is my (laughs) wife. Not working so far. We didn't stop at seven because it was enough. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Your forefathers, our forefathers were right, we're wrong. It is time to reverse this. You're not going to be happy. You, I'm going to tell you again, I see it all the time. You will not be happy if you take these things into your control. And you think, I'm going to decide how many kids I'm going to have. Because what you're saying to God is, kids are okay if I have one, so-so if I have two, and a curse if I have more. But I want to go to heaven. Really? Don't do that. Don't do what our parents did. If we are in this mess, it is because they're contracepted. I can't say it in any other way. It is not the fault of the liberals, and it's not the fault of the Muslims, and it's not the fault of anybody. It is ours and ours alone. It is because they bought into the golden calf. Except it wasn't a calf, it was a little pill. No different. Do not be afraid of trusting God. Be very afraid of trusting yourself. By, mean, by this I mean trusting only in yourself. Which brings us to the next topic, reliance on self and the state. What is Pharaoh trying to say? Pharaoh is God. I am God, he said. My son is God. What is the state trying to tell us? I am the state. I provide everything for you. Sweden is the perfect example. Sweden is the perfect state economy. The state provides for everything. Sweden has one of the highest teen suicide in the world. There is no religion in Sweden. The state is the religion. As soon as you have complete reliance on the state, what do you need God for? You understand? The state is the antithesis to providence. We want to regiment providence. Why? Because we want it under control. We want our lives under control. We want to make sure that everything will go according to our plan. What do you call this? When somebody wants everything according to his plan. Tyranny. That's what tyranny is. Okay? Be careful. The Lord himself said, the poor you will have with you always. Now, that doesn't mean we should not do everything we can to alleviate poverty. Don't get me wrong. We must. But that's why we have the poor, so we can do all these things and be involved. But if the state is taking care of everything, why should I do anything? The state. I pay my taxes. The state takes care of everything. It's the tyranny of the heart. The heart grows cold. Charity dies. Trust in providence dies. That's important to keep in mind. There is a political structure that promotes belief in God, and there is a political structure that doesn't. And we'll talk more about that. point being made right now is that in his behavior, Pharaoh relies on himself because he is God, and Egyptians rely on the state. It is very interesting that in one of the key words in the whole book of Revelation is servant, service, and serve. Servant, service, and serve. All from the one root verb that actually describes Israel. Israel is supposed to be a servant 
Israel is supposed to be in a service. Israel is supposed to serve. Right? The question is, who will Israel serve? That's what's at stake in the book of, of, of Exodus. The related words occur almost 100 times in Exodus, but most of these, meaning 67 out of 94, occur in chapter 1 through 15, where the focus is on this business of being a servant. Obviously, Pharaoh is servant to no one. Everybody serves him. Moses is a servant of the people of God. He's there to lead them out, but not to his own benefit. He gains nothing from it. Okay? You can see that kind of um, contrast. One more thing I'll say today, and we'll pick it up next week. When Moses is speaking to God, he displays five behavior, five behavior which we all display. He, he, he's basically refusing what God is asking him to do. Now, I want you to, again, go back to this business of kids. I can't have kids. I, I'm inadequate. What do I mean by that? Well, I don't have enough money. I don't have a house. We're not settled yet. Moses is the same thing. Well, I can't do that. What are you looking at me? Go find somebody else. I'm ignorant. Ignorance, right? He says, if I'll come to the people of Israel and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? If I'm going to have a baby, what am I going to do with it? I'm not sure I can be a father. I'm not sure I can be a mom. I'm not ready for this. Uh, memo to everyone. God is not asking you to be ready. God is asking you to be generous. The funny thing, the funny thing is that you will not hear young men and young women saying, I'm not ready for dating. I need to go to university, take a course on dating. I need to learn how to do it properly. No. When, they, when we turn 16 or 17, automatically we'll become professional daters. We know how to do it. We don't ask for a course when it comes to kids. Oh, no. That's radioactive material. I don't know how to handle this thing. Incredibility. But they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. What am I going to tell my parents? I want seven kids? They'll disown me. My mother-in-law may, may think I'm a criminal. I'm going to kill her daughter. Inarticulateness. Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. I, I can't do this. This is too much for me. I can't handle it. And insubordination. Oh, my Lord, send, I pray, someone, some other person. He ran out of arguments, and in the end said, I still don't want to do it. So you can sit with someone, explain to them all the things about this business of God loving you. He'll be with you. He'll take care of you. He's there. You believe in God? Yes. Is he God? Yes. Can he do everything? Yes. Then trust him to have kids. No. The hardness of heart. You have to pray. But that's, that's what, why this behavior is important for us to study. We'll do that next week. The last point I want to make is the role of women. And that, was, that, that one is very striking. The Egyptian king thought to control women. I'm going to get rid of the men. Right? And so now all the women will be forced to marry Egyptians. Right? Well, that's... What can I say? He doesn't know women. I have six girls. That kind of thinking makes you laugh. Not easy. What happens to him? He's defeated by the women. First, the malicious attempt of genocide is frustrated by midwives. They have the fear of God in them and they refuse to go along. Second, Moses' mom and Miriam, his sister, save Moses' life. Third, Pharaoh's daughter receives him. That's very important. It was not an act of um, 
how, am I, how should I say that? An act of vanity. Oh, look, this cute little chubby thing. I'm just going to take and play with him, and I'm tired and give it to somebody else. That's not what she was doing. Why? The language in Scripture tells us. So notice the parallel. In chapter 2, this is what the sacred writer says. She goes down to the Nile. She sees and hears the baby crying. Hmm? In chapter 3, verse 8, God comes down, sees, and hears his people crying. What is she? She is an agent of God. It is true maternal love that motivates her. This is not a woman acting out of vanity, even though she's a princess. She's acting out of godly love to life. And she saves it. Later, we'll see that in one of the strangest and most difficult passages in Scripture, Zipporah, Moses' wife, saves him. So, we have the midwives. Two of them are named. Moses' mother and sister, that's four. The, the, uh, the daughter of Pharaoh, that's five. And Zipporah, that's six in about three chapters. Six women save the day. Number one, it's a recapitulation, an echo of the confrontation between Eve and the dragon. In which this case, the women frustrate the dragon. And it is obviously a signal to the real victory of a woman over the dragon, to Our Lady. In each of these women, you can see traits of Mary. You can see echo of her. And the last thing I will say to you, and I'll, I'll, uh, it's worth... Uh, reflecting. The reason why the people of Israel were saved, the reason why they're saved, were because the women were life bearers. They protected life. What do you think happens when the women are bearers of death? Reflect on that. We'll take it next week. Let's First, finish with a word of prayer, and then we'll take your questions. Please stand. All right. Questions? Yes. Um, what is my take on the Muslims multiplying rapidly? God bless them. The world belongs to those who bring life. As far as I'm concerned, um, I, I am looking forward to the day where all of Europe is Muslim. You know why? Because it may be much better state than it is in right now. Fewer people will go to hell. My take is very simple. God has always used Islam to chastise us. And in the process, he converts the Muslims. So according to Father Pakwa, in Indonesia, last year, 100,000 Muslims converted. This year, 100,000 converted. We don't know of all the conversions that are going on in Islam. But they're happening. So, yeah, they're modest. They dress modestly. God is going to bless them. And when they're open to life, because not all of them are, many Muslims use contraception like everybody else, God will bless them according to his covenant. That covenant is made for everyone. He didn't say only Jews. He said to Abraham, all nations shall be blessed by you. So anyone, anyone, Buddhist, Christian, Muslim, atheist, 
who is open to life and receive children is living according to the natural covenant. God said, I'll bless you. He's blessed. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean they'll make it to heaven. But they absolutely receive natural blessing. Whereas a Catholic who's contracepting is accursed. He's living under the curse. Yes. No, I think, I don't know personally, but I would suspect that if they're taken in refugees, they're genuine and sincere. They're not trying to sort of benefit from them. But in the overall life of Sweden, it is a life that is ruled and governed by the state. And it, is, it will be interesting to see how the Iraqi community will fare since they are now in Egypt, so to speak. Right? Will they be able to keep their faith and become a source of blessing to Sweden? Or will they be integrated into the Swedish culture and become just like everybody else? That's the question in Exodus. Israel was supposed to be a witness to the Egyptians. So that the Egyptians would imitate Israel. Instead, it ended up being the other way around. So if there is true life of grace in the Iraqi community, that's why God would have sent them over to Sweden. That is why they were persecuted. So that they would leave Iraq and go to a place and be a source of blessing for others. Through them, the word of the gospel will grow. That's what happened in Acts. When the Christians in Jerusalem were persecuted, it was Jesus' design to get them out of there and send them to places he wished to bless. You understand how it works? We think of it completely differently. We think um, Iraqi persecution or the Iraqis being persecuted nothing to do with the God's will. Jesus is completely out of the picture. It's just these Muslims doing it. It has everything to do with him. He's always in control. And if he sends us to other places, he means for us to be a source of blessing or he knows we'll be integrated. You understand? That's how it always works. Yes. So that's a very good question. What did I mean when I said that the Holy Spirit will have a hard time illuminating our heart? The Holy Spirit is non-invasive. The Holy Spirit doesn't hit us with a jackhammer. The Holy Spirit doesn't impose himself upon us. He's like the breeze. He's very gentle. To the degree that we open our, our hearts to the, infl- uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to that degree, the Holy Spirit will work to us. Now, how does he do that? He doesn't do it directly. We don't communicate usually with the Holy Spirit directly. The way it works, in everything, the Holy Spirit communicates with our guardian angel. Our guardian angel communicates with us. Every blessing we receive, every single blessing we receive is through our guardian angel. So, how does the, our guardian angel work with us? He works with whatever we give him. To the degree that we've opened ourselves to his inspiration, he will work with us. So, if we said the prayer, or we said, uh, guardian angel, or Lord, I pray that my thoughts, my will, my uh, imagination be known to my guardian angel, and I, w- I will for him to rule over me then our guardian angel has a much greater ability to work because he knows more of us. But if, and then then how does he communicate with us? Through our imagination. The imagination is the most angelic of of our faculties. Well, then he has to work with what we stuffed in it, right? If we spend our time watching sports and horror movies and um, ugly images... He has very little he can work with because the holy because the, the angel is trying to show us beauty. Well, if we stuffed our mind with all that stuff, how is he going to be able to work with us? We make it really difficult on him to communicate truth to us. If, on the other hand, 
we're working to safeguard, to protect our imagination from, especially in this world today where everything can be seen, if we're diligently working on making sure that we keep our imagination pure, we're, make, we're, we're increasing the ability of our guardian angel to communicate with us. If on top of that, we have an understanding of what scripture means literally, what was intended by it, it becomes vastly easier for our guardian angel to explain to us scripture in the context of our own lives. Otherwise, he can only give us a little trickle. You understand? Not even. I'm just saying the sloppiness. The, 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 the fact that we don't train ourselves. We don't guard ourselves. We're not aware we live a spiritual combat. That we have to be careful. That we need to be selective about what we see and what we do. And all of this. Our words. What come out of our mouth. If we don't do all of those things. The Holy Spirit will have a hard time working with us. Yeah? Yes. Very good. The stand of the church. on The, the social teaching of the church. About, about welfare, there is a number of, of principles that the church has put forward about how we should be living. Right? The first one is the everything we do must safeguard the dignity of the human being. The individual is above the community in that sense. The dignity of the human being should never be um, denied. The second one is the principle of, um, thank you, subsidiarity, which means that a greater organization should not do what a small organization could do. So the school should not do what the family can do. The municipality should not do what a small group of people could do. The city should not do what the municipality should do. The state should not do what, etc. You get, you, get you get my drift? So in that regard, the church is not for a state welfare, where the state does everything. Okay? The third thing that the church says is that uh, the church upholds the right of people to create unions. And then there's a fourth one, uh, yeah, the inalienable right to own property, so you can have your own house. And I think there's a fifth, which I don't remember right now. But all in all, what the, what the focus of the, 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 the Catholic Church isn't capitalism, and it isn't socialism, it is familism. The society, the economy, must be built to uphold, support, promote, and defend the family. And we have exactly the opposite today. But it doesn't mean that it is impossible to God. You understand? Yeah, yes. So uh, the question is, I, I get that question quite often in various forms. Okay, so I'm not going to use contraception. Does this mean I'm going to have 17 kids? Right? Well, first of all, my, my typical answer to this is that, who do you think you are that God is going to bless you with 17 kids? You can't get seven kids on your own. God has, some, has a say in it, a big one. That's number one. Number two, does this mean I can't control myself? What, what does it mean when the man says, especially it's the man problem, right? I can't control myself. Well, that means you have a vice. You're not being virtuous, which means you don't love your wife. You want to take advantage of her. That's number two. Number three, does this mean I'm going to have so many kids that I cannot afford? No. It means that every sexual act is joined to a prayer. It means we don't separate prayer from sexuality. It means that sexuality is the prayer of the body. Therefore, we ask the Lord, is that the right time? Do you want to bless us with another child? Then we use our reason. 
is the, is the, are the conditions right? What does that mean? Is there impediment to health? Is, let's say, the mother having uh, um, um, health issues, or is the father unemployed? Are there reasons that fundamentally prevent the family from, not, do I have enough? Not, I don't have enough money. If you're employed, if you're working, God will provide. You understand? If you have someone, that's the other problem. And thank, thank you for asking this question. I've said this many times, but this is another one of those lies. You see, I, I come to believe in the presence of the Holy Spirit because the more I study Scripture, the more I have every reason to be pessimistic. And yet I'm not. So I know it's not for me. In Genesis, God said to the man, with the sweat of your brow, brow you will toil the ground. What is intended by that? It is medicinal, right? It's a curse compared to what was before, but it was not final. He's not sending the man to hell, is he? So why does he want him to till the ground with the sweat of his brow? Why? Because in working, a man gains heaven. The way of sanctification for a man is through his work. Now, I'm speaking about what is specific to the man. I'm not saying, oh, well, that doesn't mean that being a husband or a father. No, 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 no. The family is integral. But specifically to the man, it is work. Not the woman. The way of sanctification for a man is through work. Not the woman. Now, don't, don't, don't blame me. Talk to the boss. He's behind me. Go ask him why. To the woman, he said, in pain, you shall bring forth children. So the way of sanctification of a woman is by being a mother and a wife. So why, the reason why we uphold the traditional structure of the family isn't for some sort of a power deal or because the man wants to be controlling of his wife or any of that nonsense. It is because it's the natural order of holiness that God has established. Therefore, when we men send our wives to the workforce, we are fundamentally depriving them from the glory that is theirs. Translation, had they stayed at home and accepted to be mothers and, 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 and wives and take care of the house and the kids, their, their glory, their final state of glory in heaven would be incomparably higher than if they went and became a CEO and wielded authority over 200,000 people. Yeah? So the whole notion of a woman working outside the house, and don't get me wrong, I completely believe, without any doubt, that if men were to disappear tomorrow and there was some other way to bring children over, the women will survive just fine. And presumably, they'll even have a better life. I have no doubt about that. There's not one doubt in my mind that anything a man can do, a woman can do. None. Zero. Zilch. This is not about power. This is not about trying to... It, it is tragic, in fact, to think that the greatest and holiest thing a woman can do is belittled to such a degree that it has become a curse. Oh, she's just a housewife. Well, you know what? When somebody says that, he's insulting Our Lady. And when you insult Our Lady, 
you have no deal with his son, with her son. So when you're a working woman, I, I feel for you. I'm really sorry. You're missing out on what God has truly prepared for you. Now, I'm not castigating anybody. I'm not saying you should do it, you shouldn't do it. I'm not. Everybody has different circumstances. I'm essentially saying this. So here's my question. Have you brought that up to the Lord in prayer? Have you said to the Lord, my heart is to do your will, and my heart is to be a mother and a housewife. I don't see how I can do that. But I believe that nothing shall be impossible to you. Please make it happen. And you will see how your life will be transformed in ways you cannot even begin to imagine. And all the restlessness, all the anxiety, all the sense of fatigue, all the solitude, all the sense that something is missing, goes away. Because now, you are imitating Mary. And the man has a lot to do with it. If he truly loves his wife... That's what he wills for her. Because he wants her to be a great saint in heaven. That's what a man is called to do. Any other question? Yes. Oh, that's the standard teaching of the church on, on angels. Everything, not just the Holy Spirit. Our Lord speaks to us through our guardian angel. Our Lady speaks to us through a guardian angel. God willed that our guardian angel be here present and that everything flows to us through him. All the fathers of the church are unanimous on this. Absolutely unanimous. There isn't a father that would say otherwise. Yes. Well, yeah. So, again, whether she's a widow or not, right? Let's say she's a widow and she's working out of necessity. Because through this, she really would love to be at home and with her kids. But God is depriving her from it for her sanctification. She suffers from it. That's one situation. Versus the one you just described where she's at work, whether or not she loves her job. And she prefers her job over her children. And in that case, she's, um, she's not following God's plan of sanctification for her. I'm not saying that she doesn't reach heaven. I'm saying there are different degrees of glory in heaven. And the highest she could have reached for all eternity is not through that path. Right? So the key is, are we asking God truly and genuinely to do His will? And courageously and generously following through and be willing to change in order to do his will. That's the question. None of us can change from day to the other. But are we opening our hearts to him saying, please show me what you want me to do. And I am willing to do it, no matter what. And then he leads you. Yeah? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.